All right, it's time for another podcast on coaching. John, it's 2020, and we're going to bring out a very, I think, controversial topic. So we're giving the people what they want? Yes, of course, that's what we do every day, all day, every podcast, 24 hours. No, actually, we're not Fox News or CNN. We take breaks. We <laughs> take lots of breaks sometimes. Um, well, we, you know what? We, it's our own, we take our own medicine. We say you got to take restorative periods, so take you, them. You do. But you know what? When we're on, we're on, and right now we're on. And when we were at the Missouri conference, I think we spoke for, I don't know, like eight, nine hours. My um, voice got hoarse, and it was the most awesome conference yeah. ever. Like I, I told them I want to come back with Steve. We want to come back. Like I've never been to Missouri, and I'm happy to go back to Columbia, Missouri every year as long as they have us. Because great, great group of coaches, yes. great group of um, support staff, great group of presenters. Like first class all the way. Super impressed. And, and that, you know, that was the, the coolest thing is it's a nice reminder that like coaching comes from these conversations. And for those who, who weren't there, John and I spent, I don't know, a couple hours after our last presentation, just, just, uh, talking with a bunch of, uh, good coaches in, um, in the presentation hall area. And like that to me was a highlight because it was just like, Hey, let's talk about each other's uh, problems they're at, they're facing and like, see if we can brainstorm some solutions. And, um, you know, whether it's us there or, you know, you and your local, uh, running buddies or high school coaches or college coaches who have time to get together, like, Really, it was really a good reminder that like that, that is key and that is where the gold is found and to keep those conversations going. That's really, yeah, where the profession and the legacy of the profession is passed and strengthened is in that like, um, open minded, forward thinking dialogue, right? And I think that was the fun part about it. It was a lot of people who just had questions had uh, experiences, had insights, offering up in kind of that roundtable um, forum where it was just like it didn't matter who you were or what level you coached or how long you coached. I mean, we had coaches who had been coaching for, you know, in that little um, impromptu mini post-conference, uh, 10 years, one year, Division three, NAIA, high school, you know, you name it. And that's the diversity of it is like, I learned a couple of things about the realities of problems people were facing and how they were solving it. Like, you know, and that's always the thing. Your education never stops. Exactly. So <clears throat> now that we've covered that, what are we talking about today? I don't know, Steve, you tell me, what okay. are we talking about today? <laughs> how to run high volume and high speed in training. I said, and... Oh. The best of both worlds. Wait, you can do both at the same time? Mind blown. So this 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 conversation came out of, or this idea for this conversation came out of uh, actually Twitter, which is sometimes a repository for ideas or can spark It's a ideas. great, no, no, people hate on Twitter. It's a great vehicle forum tool if you know how to use it. And like, if you use it the, uh, the way it was designed to be used, it's awesome. I learned so much on Twitter. Yes, very, very true. I've learned a lot as well. Um, so this this came out of this debate we had uh, with uh, Tony Holler, who is a past guest. Um, and, and it basically came down to this high volume versus high intensity approach, right? Or high speed approach. 
And uh, of course, Tony was on the other side, um, talking about, you know, high speed and worried about the volume of training that high school athletes were doing and all that kind of stuff. And, um, John commented a couple times. I commented a couple times and we want to really just break that down because I, I think when we talk about these, these, uh, these kind of diverse, um, um, harsh topics, we'll say that like cause groups to split into either or, um, it, it reduces it to a point where we, we kind of lose the thread a little bit and lose reality a little bit in the sense that, um, it's not an either or statement, right? It's not, I'm for high volume or I'm for high intensity training or high speed training. It should be all of these things matter to a degree. The combination we use is what is the secret or the magic sauce. But Mm -hmm. that combination depends on the athlete you're working with and where they're at. And I think that, you know, some of the mistakes we've made in the past is we've, we've pointed towards we've pointed towards se- different programs and created straw men out of them right yeah <laughs> so the, the the classic straw man is like oh like look at well there's two look at emil zatapak and all the intervals he ran mm-hmm. high speed but then you look at how many intervals the dude is running and you're like oh that's a lot of volume mm-hmm. and then the opposite is oh lydiard High volume training. And then you go look during their competition phase and you're like, oh man, Peter Snell was running five days a week of interval training with mm-hmm. like some flat out 200s and 23 <laughs> seconds or whatever. And you're just like, oh, that's a lot of speed training. And, 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 and that's where I think as coaches, we do ourselves a disservice in painting this, uh, unrealistic picture of, of, this like either or when the reality is all good coaches since you know the beginning of distance running time have been arguing not over either or but over how to best combine and mix all these ingredients into into their you know soup that they're cooking yeah we gotta remember right exercise is medicine any type of exercise is medicine and dosage is what matters and potency of the dosage. And, you know, I'm a big, big advocate for speed, speed in my, you know, I know it needs to be done year round day one. And then the answer is why. Right. And so then it, then the question is people splinter and create polarity on that standpoint, because they're like high intensity training, that's speed work. It's like, no, 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 no. Speed work is more neurological. It's a motor skill. You know, yes, there are physiological consequences of it that happen, but the motor skill of sprinting, the tissue requirement for the force that is being expressed and absorbed when you sprint on all your lower limb tissues, that has a retardation or uh, a decline period if it is atrophied and not used. So that's why it's best to, to visit it year round all the time but in the correct dosage for that period of training you're in, right? I think that's where we have to understand, like, it's a thousand-piece puzzle training. 
And sometimes we get so focused and centrated on the one piece. And we have to also understand where different perspectives different people are coming from, right? Steve and I can talk with, I think, a little bit of authority and understanding about training through a whole spectrum of athletes from youth all the way up to masters because we've coached every level, right? And some coaches are only coaching and have only coached for years at one level or that level. It doesn't discredit the level they're coaching. It's just the lens that we can look through um, for Steve and I is a lot more panoramic and a little bit broader. We can go in granular and focus. But the key here is to understand, like, for the athlete population you work with, where they are on their development timeline, what's the thing that's impeding? And what's the thing that is going to have the biggest return for this period of development? And Tony has to kill a lot of sacred cows. He's iconoclastic in the sprint and um, uh, football world because the reality is in football, right, they've trained erroneously, like, endurance athletes, even though they're only on the field and actually doing activity in six-second spurts that add up for 11 total minutes. So it's six-second spurts for a play break, six-second spurts for a break, play break. You know, there's only 11 minutes of actual playing on each side of the ball. So why then are the do they have these grueling, you know, ultra-marathon, four-hour practices for football? that doesn't the transfer doesn't really make sense what's this endurance for why aren't they you know being fresher and faster and there's a lot of precedent before this like in football world bill walsh understood that the 49ers in his era and he's able to get them non-fatigued and they were very dominant because of it you know Tip kelly at oregon i sat down with jimmy radcliffe and talked with him about the programming that chip and him did for oregon during his time there when it was the win the day mentality and it was fast, quick football. Very, very forward thinking at the time. I don't think it's going to be repeated because it caught everyone off guard during that era. But it's understanding the problem and how to attack it or what to get away from because either the current paradigm or the traditional paradigm is no longer valuable because you have better metrics now how to measure the um, strain and the impact of that load and the relative degree of that strain on the athlete, or because it might not just sync up metabolically meta, um, and also neurologically. And that's the issue here. There's no either or. Like a lot of times when I post on Twitter, like you got to run fast all the time, people will freak out like, no, we'll try, and, you know, oh, you lose all your nerve. I'm not saying every day you're running fast. Every day is a sprint workout. I'm saying the frequency of that dosage needs to be maintained throughout an athlete's um, training and competitive calendar. Otherwise you lose the skill. So quick side note, because I think this is interesting is that, um, so Tom Telez back when he was at UCLA helped write the workouts for the football team at UCLA when it was coached by Dick Vermeil, who went on to oh, the yeah. Eagles and stuff. And, it was interesting, like, when he was, he actually told me this, I think we were watching the movie uh, Invincible, which was about the Eagles, mm. and when Vermeil was there, and he just brought this up, and he was like, oh yeah, we, we trained them, like, kind of like sprinters, and then for their conditioning, they did essentially, like, Igloy-style hundreds. He was like, oh, we did hundreds with, like, you know, 30, 40 seconds rest, and that was, like, our endurance. And I was like, oh, that makes complete sense you know um 
And I think like, <clears throat> you know, football is one of those that has, has been trained long, wrong, quote unquote, at certain periods for a long time. But it's like a nice reflection. I'm like, oh, like people have been doing it right at some point. Um, and had at least the secret and the secret sauce in there as well. But like that, that, that Igloy style of like, oh, we can do really short reps of a hundred meters or whatever to train endurance is another great example of exactly what you're talking about is that you, you can train speed or endurance in a variety of ways. It just depends on how you, um, how you slice and dice the reps recovery and all that stuff. And it doesn't have to be these straw man traditional ideas that we talked about. And I think that's one of these com concepts where speed often gets neglected because like, or gets uh, misunderstood because when you say speed to, let's say uh, a sprint coach, they might think, you know, uh, a, a lot of different variations of speed, but maybe top speed and think, you know, um, I don't know, running 70, 80 meters. Um, if you say speed to your traditional high school coach, they might think 400 meter repeats. And because of that, like, slide and of, of definition that sometimes, like, we're talking about different things. Um, and that doesn't help this communication among, like, what is needed when. Yeah, it's it's having a common vocabulary, I think, is the hardest part and the biggest barrier, because we're not the only ones who face this in the coaching community, we face it in the scientific community as well. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, I actually noticed this the other day, it's one of our, uh, one of our uh, people on staff was going through the um, a coach's education thing and asked, you know, asked for me to uh, help him define a couple terms that like he didn't, he didn't quite get on uh endurance or uh you know distance running training <laughs> and there were a couple phrases in there where i'm like i can't tell you man he's like i thought you were like the science guy i'm like yeah but there's so many different definitions and especially when people coaches take scientific terms and then create workouts out of them i think one of them was like extensive glycolytic uh capacity wow and I'm okay. like, I mean, I, I was like, I know what glycolysis is and I can take a, ga ga a gather at like capacity, like glycolytic capacity. We could like, you know, rationalize that. And like, I guess I could tell you extensive. So opposite of intensive. So if we look mm -hmm. at extensive versus intensive intervals, like I can tell you kind of what those are, but like. I have no idea what that means in its totality. Like I can maybe break it down, but, and it's like, well, you know, your distance, you're an educated distance coach with a scientific background. And I was like, yeah, but the problem is we all have different phrases and terms. And like, apparently the coach's education you're looking at, like for some reason decided this was important and valuable and, that might be great and it might make sense in their paradigm, but like, I can't even tell you what their paradigm is without like a definition or, or without a workout example, because like we're speaking a different language and yeah, that, that's, and that's part of the problem. And that's the thing is we have to define terms up front. And I think when we define terms up front and we get the common language about when I say speed, I might, you know, 
are you talking about max velocity? Are you talking about um, speed endurance? You know, because sometimes as distance coaches, we do lump all those things in the same bucket. Like anything faster than 800 meter pace in our mind, because it's pace anchored, is speed. However, you know, there's a lot of different variations and nuances of speed, right? You know, and if you go through that continuum of where the speed coaches live, they have, right, there's a difference between speed endurance and endurance speed. I mean, to distance, most distance coaches are like, huh? There's a difference between power, there's a difference between max velocity, there's a difference between acceleration, and they're all very subtle. And it might seem like semantics and just like bickering, but we know that these subtleties matter and the load and the strain and the interpretation on the athlete matters because it creates um, different mechanisms and different responses. Some are acute and some, you know, are chronic. And I think that's the thing I'm always trying to balance as a coach, right? So the first thing is to understand, I think, up front is the different types of acute and chronic responses that can happen from different types of workloads. And so the sequencing and the relationship between the work and the, the loads and the responses is the key thing to keep in mind, right? So when I went, anyone asks me about speed, I say, if you're doing real speed work, do it fresh, speed fresh, because that's you'll get the most return from a holistic standpoint from a neurological physiological you know um uh, uh metabolic standpoint on all those different variables if you do speed fresh you know steve and i differ on the concept of doing a tempo run followed by 200s i understand why someone might want to do faster 200s from a um, proprioceptive or athlete psychological you know confidence building readiness perspective but for me i just for the athlete population I work with, it doesn't seem like it will transfer enough for me to want to do that. So you can insert in different ways, but the the way I sequence it is the fast stuff first, the relative slower stuff second or later. And if you follow that sequencing, you're going to be in my world and how I think about it, you know, setting yourself up for success and the highest degree of adaptation and also transfer. But if you're going to do you know, say like an hour steady state right at their maximum lactate threshold of four millimoles, right? And you're just right on that line. And that's a red, what we might call like the red zone or redlining workout. And then you're going to go, okay, say, oh, let's now take five minutes rest after this hard, hard hour of, you know, redlining it. And we're going to do some power hills. I, I think that's a little too ambitious, <laughs> you know, and I think that's where we have, that's the conversation we have to have is what is the sequence, you know, what is the acute and chronic uh, uh, strain? What's the acute and chronic adaptation horizons, not just from a micro like day to day or even week to week standpoint, but also like a bigger scale, like month to month, block to block, year to year. And that's the conversations you can't really have on Twitter because they only give you 280 characters. What? You mean we can't have all conversations like on Twitter? <laughs> I, yeah, I, we can't. We can. I feel like that's uh, where the world is going. Um, well, not everyone has a podcast, Steve, but we do. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about it here. <laughs> all right. So where do you want to jump in on that? Where's the starting point? I think, you know, we need to start... Uh, 
at the biggest bias, right? And let's talk about the the biggest bias, which is the metabolic or physiological bias. And I th- I think we just need to unpack that in the two different worlds of because I, I what I think is there's a, a concept that you can't do high volume and high speed concurrently, and that they're somehow going to like um, cross cancel each other, the impact of it, and actually create this like injury, uh, higher risk of injury, which. If you do it a certain way, of course, but if you do it the way Steve and I, I think, have a concept of, you actually get global positive adaptations and a better, faster, stronger athlete. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think the bias is the key thing is that uh, we all come to training with a bias. Um, and, and this goes for not just distance running coaches, but everybody. Um you know, sprint coaches tend to have an anti-endurance bias, like, but they also have a bias towards biomechanics and not uh, not as much physiology. Endurance coaches tend to have a very heavy bias towards a, a metabolic energy system-based um, idea because our sport is traditionally, you know, um, dependent on that. But th- the problem comes here for me is that when we like use ideas, whether it's neural systems, neuromuscular systems, energy systems or whatever, um, to classify our training, we have to realize that there's a trade-off that we're giving because we don't, we're, things don't work as nice and neatly as we think they do. Okay. Everything bleeds together. Yeah. Everything bleeds together. And I think that's the, you know, if I'm going to interject real quick, all energy systems bleed together. The idea that we're working the alactic glycolytic, you know, energy system only with this type of work is short-sighted. I mean, there's, it might be one of the primary fueling substrates for a period of that work, but there's other fueling substrates being mixed into creating action potentials in the body to go. And and I would extend that further and say that energy systems bleed together, which also means that all our quote-unquote zones of training that we often use, whether you use a 3, 5, 7, or a, somehow figure out a 24 zone model, um, <laughs> it, it all bleeds together as well, right? Mm-hmm. We like to think like, Oh, we're going to go do a VO2 max workout, which means run this many reps at this pace with this much rest and we're hitting our VO2 max and that's what we're working on. But the reality is you might be working on your VO2 max a little bit, but you're also working on all these other things as well. Even mm-hmm. if you control it nearly precisely. And I, I think that's where we lose things a little bit. Because we have this trade-off of this night, this need to categorize to make sense of a very complex world that we coaches live in, um, mm. that allows us to handle the complexity of training and sort it, which is a good thing. But there's a trade-off in the sense that when we categorize, we then have a tendency to overemphasize the things that are in our categories, right? Mm-hmm, and we mm-hmm. assume that, oh, I did a lactate threshold run because I did this. So I'm going to check that box and this is trained. So I'm going to wait a week or two until it's trained again. But mm-hmm. there's not this one-to-one of, oh, I did this. 
I trained the lactate threshold, so now I'm I'm good. Like I developed this. You might have developed this a little bit, and you might have also at the same time developed the components that make up VO2 max or whatever have you. Um and I think that that is an idea that needs to stick in our minds along with everything bleeds together because that categorization affects how we think of this high volume and high speed training mm-hmm. because we generally think, oh, they're counter opposed to each other, right? Or mutually exclusive. And that might be the case, but it depends on how you mix things together. Just like you just said there, John is <clears throat> if I do, we'll take Two extreme examples. If I have a four mile tempo, okay, we'll say four or four miles at lactate threshold, whatever that is. Okay. If I do four by 60 meter all out sprints with full recovery before, or I do four by 60 meters of all out sprints after, it affects not only the adaptation I'm getting out of those sprints. But it will also affect the adaptation or the point or the stress to a certain degree of the four-mile threshold as well. Right. Because the idea of gene signaling, right? Yeah. You're you're changing stuff slightly. Now, is it enough to worry about and stress over? Like, not in the huge grand scheme of things, but it will over time, right? So that Mm -hmm. if – think of it like this. If if I – always do my four by 60 after my four mile tempo, then I am never probably truly, truly getting nearly maximum like recruitment of the primary movers of, of running, right? I'm not getting as high a force output uh, into the ground because I'm slightly fatigued. So -hmm. therefore I'm not getting full max uh, as recruitment. Okay. Over time, that has a very significant training effect, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's these these small things like this where it's like now now <laughs> we're going into the weeds here because that's, yeah, that's the point, that's, man. That's, that's why we point. got a podcast. Let's do it. <laughs> but but now let me ask you this: What if I said, you know what? When I'm developing top speed, I'm always going to do my four by sixty first. So mm-hmm. for two months, let's say, I do it beforehand, okay? Now it gets into the point where the season where I'm, you know, maybe I'm struggling to fit everything in. I'm a college or a high school coach, and I'm like, oh, I've got all these components, and I need to fix them in and all this stuff, and we've got races every week. And I make the decision, you know what, I'm going to move them to after. Or you know what, I'm going to, instead of doing 4 by 60 I'm going to do 4 by eight second sprints up a hill to get that. Now I might not get as much training effect anymore, but I might be able to maintain the training effect to a higher degree than if I just got rid of or neglected those things. Right? So now that now the trade off is okay. Like I'm going to add these in here and I'm, I'm going to get most of my bank for my buck because I've developed this for so long that now it, it doesn't take as much to maintain it and I might lose a little bit, but like I'm willing to make that trade off. 
And that would yeah. be a perfectly reasonable and okay justification for, for coaching it that way. But mm-hmm. the, but the point is you need to understand what you're trying to develop and how it interacts to be able to make those decisions on the sequencing of things. Yeah, and that's where you have to look at the competitive demands of the peak period that you're preparing for. And I, you know, as a quick aside, this is what the mistake or what gets forgotten about Lydiard. Lydiard was very intent on bringing his athletes to a certain peak deliverable for in a certain period, three to four weeks. They did all this preparation work with all these different phases of emphasis, right? The marathon phase, the bounding phase, the hill phase, the interval phase, etc. was all focused, narrow, very sharp, because his definition of training was performance brought to a peak on the day, the day of the championship. He didn't care about world records, right? And what happens is when you try to be fit year-round or good year-round, now that we have this kind of like – 24 7 you know uh social media ecosystem where you got to like show you're like in top condition year round this just not real it just you can't do that i mean without the aid of significant amount of pharmaceuticals <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> you gotta pick your spots so in that that also develops your macro sequencing meaning how are you going to develop certain qualities at certain periods out from the peak period i'll give a very concrete example with daniel herrera the uh, mexican miler i'm working with so we got his we identified a gap in competitiveness was his um rate of force development and his ability just to express max velocity at a world-class level that's why he was he's sitting at national class not world class so we made a very, very concerted effort the last four months of training from when he came back from break to the end of 2019 to get him faster at 100 meter um, uh, drop-ins or fly-ins, so with about a you know four to five step start, he's now at a point where he can run three sets to three times 100 in between a threshold of his fastest. He set a you know in practice personal best of 10.9 to his slowest being 11.2. You know, and I asked some sprint coaches you know, that I uh, hold counsel with. And I said, do we need to get him faster? Do I need to chase 10-7? I asked Alan, what, do I need to chase faster? I go, what was the fastest you ever ran for 100, Alan? He goes, 11 flat with a tailwind at Drake the day before I ran 351 there in 2007. I go, oh, that's good to know. I don't think, Dan, we need to get faster than Alan Webb. <laughs> like, so now it's about maintaining that quality, maintaining it through the next eight months. So we don't want to get slower, but we don't need to chase his, you know, absolute or his top end speed any faster. For the mile, you know, I'm going to hang my hat on someone who can express 10.9. I'm going to say that's going to be competitive. Now the quality is that to get him to a space where he's metabolically and cognitively fresh enough to express something in that ballpark, well, that's the first, you know, three and a half minutes of racing, right? So... Now we're in a heavy steady state block. We're really focusing on if we're, you know, thinking more zonal, like zone two, fat max, and using fatty acids or trying to, you know, kind of um, correlate his heart rate that he's running and his perceived effort that he's running 
relative to what we've designated as this, this zone, right? And it's very, I use a five zone model because I need a little bit more nuance, but we put it there and the pace fluctuates on the day to day. But how often is he running steady? About four to five times a week. He's running steady after like some sprint workouts. He's running steady just on non-workout days for certain periods because we know that that quality can come online pretty quick because it's just more metabolic in nature than the motor and metabolic and um, force and tissue quality that's sprinting, right? So he's still sprinting during this period that he's in now, but it's not the emphasis. It's a, it's a stabilized quality that we're maintaining. And now we're trying to onboard something new. So, you know, again, are we concerned about how, is he running 180 miles a week? No, because what we're concerned about is he's getting about, you know, two and a half to three hours of steady state running in a week, broken up into chunks for, you know, as little as 15 minutes to as much as 45 minutes per uh, per ba- per bout and per total work block, and that's what I'm saying. So that's high volume, but he's concurrently also doing still maintaining high speed. And of course, we're doing you know index workouts like acidosis tolerance sessions for him, uh, stamina sessions relative for him, you know, and then also um, speed endurance and pure speed sessions relative for him. So, but we got him there through a long period of planning a long period of stable of adaptation to stabilization and only when he was ready, you know, and this is the luxury we have as, you know, post-collegiate or professional coaches. It's only when the athlete was ready, was we, are we ready to make that transition? Scholastic coaches, you guys have a much tougher sell. You have to get the person ready by this date or else coming yeah. in th- three months coming in. We just got done with the cross <laughs> and, and, <laughs> <you're right> <laughs> and you know, the Dan story, Dan Herrera is a great example because like all we're doing is looking for where's the weak link, where's the weak links in the, in the pipe. Yes. Um, yes. That we can, you know, patch up, make stronger so that, you know, they can race faster at whatever distance they do. And as, as coaches, we do a really, really good job of this on the endurance side, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We say, you know what? This person can't handle enough. Like they can't run long enough to be able to race 5k cross country, let's say in high school. So we mm-hmm. need to, we need to get their volume up get them consistent so that like we can fix this. And then we look at their stuff and we say, you know what? Their tempo runs aren't good enough. Like they're not very good at tempos um, or thresholds or whatever you want to call it to be able to like race what I think they're capable of. Their interval work is faster comparatively than their tempo uh, for the athlete they are. So you sit there, that's a weak link. We have to develop this. But uh, on the opposite side, on that speed side, like you said, we're, we're not the best at that. Um, and, you know, the other, actually this week, we had a bunch of my college female or college women run an all out hundred. Nice. <laughs> and they had a lot of fun with it, but they asked, why are we doing this? And I was like, so I know where your basic speed is so that yeah. <laughs> we know if we need to develop, like if this is the problem or not. Right. And then, you know, one time during the season, like we're, we'll run on a four by four. Why? Because it gives us a decent idea of our speed endurance, however you want to define that. But like, mm-hmm. 
if we have an all-out 100 and we have a all-out 400 and then just by the virtue of racing have some 800s and miles and 3Ks in there, then we get a, like a decent idea of, okay, how good at, is this person at preserving their speed as the distance goes up? And is it a matter of enduring equality or is it a matter of this person's really good at like holding on to their speed at every level? So that means... <laughs> Like the only way we're going to improve is if we get a little faster at the top end so that like we can keep that, that, uh, endurance there. Um, while having more gap there to, to work with. So mm -hmm. that's, that, that's kind of it. And that's why I think it's really important as young coaches or as high school coaches and college coaches to run your athletes on four by fours and do some, uh, hundreds and stuff like that all out. I prefer a hundred because especially for for the women's side because uh, uh, distance runners aren't very good at acceleration. So mm -hmm. um, with some of my, my guys will go 60 meters on occasion, but 100 meters gives people time to accelerate to the top end and like gives you a good look at things. So it gives me the best best look and best idea so i prefer that um and the great and nor, thing and nor need, need, do they need to be good at acceleration there's no no real demand no, there's, in a, there's not during a track event to be good at acceleration so there's no need to practice it for us right right exactly <laughs> so it doesn't like if you go too short the event is like the time is too dependent on acceleration i want to see <laughs> what they can get up to top speed and how that looks. And that that's it. And I think 100 every once in a while. I mean, we did this back in high school. My high school coach was a sprint coach before a distance, before he took over cross country. And man, every year we ran, you know, I think two or three hundreds that were timed and we went one at a time, got your hundred time, wrote it down, you know? And it was strange. It was like normal at the time, but as I talked to other distance athletes, it was of course strange. And you know what? During that time period, like in high school, we never had anyone pull anything or anything like that. It was just make sure you warmed up, ready to go. Um, mm -hmm. and most of us didn't have enough power to pull anything. Um, <laughs> true. Uh, so, but I, I think like again, when we change frames and we say, all right, from, from whatever your, whatever your paradigm is, from pure sprinting to out jogging, like you have to have a way to understand, like, where is the weak link and like, how are you going to address it and fix it and then move on to the next weak link? Yeah. And also too, in your paradigm and uh, coaching philosophy, what's non-negotiable? I think, you know, Steve, Tony, and I, we all agree on one thing. Recovery is non-negotiable. Recovery is where the adaptation, the improvements, where everything takes place. And I think distance coaches, we sometimes, and a lot of times, we overwork our athletes because we feel like we got to cover all the bases. We got to tick all the box. We got to do the speed work. We got to do the threshold work. We got to do the acidosis work. We got to do the alactic work. We got to do the long run. We got to do all these qualities and all of a sudden what happens is you end up piling so much on the athlete's plate is they, their nervous system, right? Or if you, you know, are into HRV, right? That difference between 
um, the, the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system, it's so stimulated and so stressed out that it has no time to decompress and go, ah, and get that rest and digest, right? I mean, Steve wrote a whole book on the importance of the relationship between, you know, work and recovery, right? What was the, uh, what was the equation again? Remind me, I forget. Stress plus rest equals growth. <laughs> Peak performance, great book. Um, but it's true. We often forget about rest as a training unit. It is just as valuable of a training unit as the max velocity work, as the um, long run, as the, the repeat case. But it, we got to remember it's in relationship. So rest without stress is just being lazy. But rest, um, not enough rest and too much stress is called getting creeping towards under recovery, which will then become over training syndrome. So we have to always keep those things in balance. And you know what? The reality is you can't do it all in a week of training. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've tried. And you know what? Every time I've tried on myself or even on really ambitious and talented athletes, they either got sick, they either got hurt, or they either weren't able to see the transfer effect of their work to a race, which is, to me, the most gutting of it all. Why ask someone to do something if they can't take that quality that they've practiced and express it in the competitive crucible? It makes no sense. So how much rest do you need? That's the key question, too. And Tony is right, I, and I'm with him 100% at the high school level. It's probably more rest than less rest is, is the intelligent path to go. So if you think they need one day of rest in between or after a workout, I'd say err on the side of two. Because what's happening, as we know, with the ubiquitous proliferation of stimulants of the cell phone and coffee and all these other drugs that are now easily accessible and targeted at young adults – they're way overstimulated as it is in a day-to-day -day environment, plus all the work they're doing. Like, so you got to come in really sharp with the type of work you want to do and then give them that space. And it sounds counterintuitive at first. And it sounds like you're, you know, failing uh, uh, being a good Protestant and with work ethic. But less, less is probably going to be more, you know, as Vern Gambetta is very fond of saying in this instant at the college level with someone who's a lot more dialed in with their lifestyle habits and who's really bought in like if you had like a, say a brian type at uh right that person you can probably stress more because they understand intellectually and lifestyle the importance of recovery and rest and they're going to take it you're kind of one foot in one foot out athlete you probably got to stress less because they're going to stress themselves by going out and hanging out late and drinking and doing all that stuff. Like, so that's the key too, right? Is, is also thinking there's a linear one-to-one -one relationship between if I do this speed or I do this high volume, it's going to have this positive correlative impact. Not necessarily because we have to understand the relationship of stress and rest. And I think you identified something that, that is really important there is that uh, rest is non-negotiable and like knowing what is important in your training. Um, I was talking to another college coach earlier who I won't name, but <clears throat> who was talking about, you know, their athletes were not recovering as well because like they had high, their training volumes, they were at, you know, school was really tough for some of them. So they were cutting some of the work, um, 
that they they didn't need, right? They were saying, okay, like recovery matters, so we're going to cut A, B, and C out of the program. And other coaches, they were like, whoa, 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 you can't cut that. That's important. And they're like, mm-hmm. yes, it is. It is important. But like, yes, this can get us better in isolation. This is really good. But when you have to consider everything around, like this athlete is not adapting. They're overstressed. Like I can't change their school. Okay. They're already like, I'm emphasizing sleep and emphasizing it. So I have to change this training variable and this X thing over here. Well, might be good in isolation. Like for now, it's not, it's not important enough to push them over the edge because like they are where they are from a capacity of recovery. Mm -hmm. And I think that idea is important because all of these things that we talk about, whether it's speed, whether it's high intensity interval training, whether it's long endurance work, threshold work, strength training, all this stuff, like, yes, it matters. Yes, it will help improve you. But the beauty of, uh, of, of coaching is that you're working with human beings who have to adapt to the stimulus that you provide. So it mm-hmm. doesn't matter if this stimulus is quote unquote good and something that, you know, research and all this stuff shows will get you better. If you are not adapting because it's too much or you don't, or you don't have enough recovery, it does not matter. And I, I see this all the time with coaches and I've been guilty of it in the past where you do exactly what you said earlier, John, which is try and cram all this stuff in a seven day week. And oh, when yeah. you do that, it's too much, right? And you're like, Oh, yeah. like it didn't work. I did all these things are that are, you know, are great. And I did all this strength training as well, which research shows that like should improve my performance and all my athletes <laughs> got worse. And it's like, it's because we were trying to jam pack everything in and check all these boxes because they all quote unquote get you better. But the reality is it depends on like the recoverability of the athlete you're working with and you can't jam it all in to, to get it all in. And that's where I think it's important to understand what does it take to develop a component and what does it take to maintain a component. And that right there will tell you how frequently, roughly, you need to do these things, right? Because if you think, oh, I need to get them in every seven days, you're going to fail. Yes. (laughs) 100%. And it's also, too, it's like, do you need to develop the component, right? Because competition doesn't exist in a vacuum. And so that's where it's, it's good to be specific about who exactly you're competing against. And does he or she where you know relative to how they the qualities they've expressed in the past or expressing in a season how they stack up with the athlete that you're going to put up head to head against them right so i always talk to dan about specific competitors and what who he's trying to run and compete against at the you know national world-class level so he knows that he's trying to beat this runner and this runner and this runner. And they can do this. And we've seen they've expressed this. And we know they can do that. And you've gone up against them and failed because you couldn't match their acceleration in, you know, the 
the penultimate lap of a 15 uh, when you know it was slow and the pace then turned quicker or you didn't have a higher a high enough you know absolute speed ceiling so you know you couldn't stay with them with the rate of force development i mean these are specific conversations we have about specific competitors and relative to where you stand with each athlete at what athlete population level you coach you need to have those conversations too because maybe you don't need to work on you know max velocity sprinting all the time if you're you know training for a marathon and you're just trying to qualify the olympic trials and that's exciting enough and you know, um, achievable enough and also the Mount Olympus for that athlete. Now, if you're then trying to be one of the rarefied people at the Olympic trials in the marathon, like the handful of 10 who are actually there trying to make a team, that might be something you need to consider if it will give you a competitive edge or, and what the cost benefit ratio is of working on that relative to the other qualities that need to be developed to give you a competitive edge. Exactly. And I think that's the, that's the key is like figuring out, do you need to develop it? How, how frequently and how much does it take to develop it? And how much and frequently does it take to maintain it? And as an example there, um, do you know why Lydia did a weekly long run? Why, Steve? He found that a weekly long run was what his athletes needed after having their endurance base and mm-hmm. switched to five days a week of interval training. Mm-hmm. Once a week long run, counterbalance five days of interval training. Originally. It maintained the quality. Right. right? So, it didn't build it. It maintained it. Yes. So let's so let's think about that. Like Lydia, for him, like it was genius. Like he said, I'm building up my endurance with all these stuff, <laughs> and then I'm switching to this intense interval stuff. Well, after the hill phase, but switch to some intense interval stuff. What do I have to do to maintain the the long aerobic stuff? I need a weekly long run of mm-hmm. X. You know, yeah. but but that was for his program and his athletes. Right. If I'm trained, that doesn't mean that necessarily I need a weekly long run to maintain my endurance for every single athlete possible, although that's how we've taken it. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that, right? That balance, <laughs> right. that balance shifts. Let's say if we're not doing five days a week of, of, uh, you know, high intensity stuff. Or maybe we have a, mo- uh, a medium long run in the middle of a week sometimes. Like maybe that does enough to help maintain it. So think about these these things as not hard and fast rules of like, oh, I have to get my weekly long run. No, you need that weekly long run if you've decided this is what it takes to maintain this or if it's a part of, say, in the marathon of building the specific capacity to run long and far and then eventually fast for a really long time. And that's, I think, the the key to point on is, is it maintenance or is it just in so infrequent of a exposure that it becomes kind of devolves to like CrossFit, right? Just chaos, random, because the body needs. You can never hate on tra- CrossFit. <laughs> I'm sorry, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, 
but the so the way we the way training adaptation works 101 right is habituation and repetition of a certain skill and just frequent exposure to the skill but if you're only throwing in something every so often because you forgot to check the box for so long because you were disorganized you're now doing junk work and it doesn't matter what it is it can be junk long run can be junk speed work because you're only doing it at this really randomized intervals and the body doesn't have enough uh, frequency or exposure to it to say, hey, I actually really need to adapt this because we're doing this over and over and over and over again. And, and that's that's the key part of training I think we miss. And Lydiard, who understood this, hit it spot on with his different phases. And you know, the best way to the best way to think about this is I think is lifting weights. And are you are are you sore or not? Right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So if I go in right now and I do some heavy squats, I'm going to be really sore tomorrow. Dom's going to hit you so hard. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's going to be disaster. I'll be limping up the stairs. But if I continue that, you know, maybe twice, three times a week as I get going, that soreness is going to dissipate and go away, right? Mm-hmm. But if I stop and I say, you know what? I'm going to wait. And I'm going to do squats again in four weeks. Oh, yeah. Guess what? That soreness comes back. Mm-hmm. Brutal. Because the body has, like, been far enough away from it where it forgets it, right? But, you know, if I've been doing my two or three times a week and I go down to one time for a week and then back up to two times the next week – I'm not going to get that sore during that one time of the week, even though I had some time. Because I've, I'm adapted to it and the space and time between isn't so much that my body kind of forgets, right? And mm-hmm. that's, that's how you have to think of some of these qualities that you need to maintain. If you go six weeks between sprinting, then it's like going six weeks between lifting, right? Where your body just kind of forgets. It's going to get sore. And that's where you get that that randomized kind of CrossFit effect, since we're seeing that, um, of like, hey, we're just going to all randomly throw things in there for a while and like get away from things for a while and then come back to it. And your body doesn't adapt as well. And yeah, like one of the biases I see that's very frequent is we tend to do too much of something, but not at the optimal intensity of the thing. Meaning, for most people, their hard intensity days are not hard or high intensity enough. And the most people, the low intensity days are not low intensity enough. You know, uh, sometimes I, I like to kind of just poke the box with Steven Seiler a little bit on Twitter. And it's not because I disagree with him at all. Um, I, you know, I just, I'm really just trying to understand a little bit more. But I don't think people's high intensities are high enough and the low intensities are low enough because the accumulation or the volume of the time they're spending in doing those training um, uh, emphasis is globally too much. And so meaning we frequently need less dosage than we think we need because the mindset is more is better here. But the dosage that the body responds best to is the relative level intensity. So when you go at a high intensity, go high, go. 
But when you go low intensity in relationship to where the high intensity happened the day after or the day before, make sure it's really, really from an intensity interpretation standpoint low. For some athletes, that's a three-mile easy jog. For some athletes, it's a day off. For some athletes, it's 10 miles you know, in the forest. For some athletes, it's a potentiation workout of sprints and intervals, right? Or, or short sprints and um, some type of uh, plyometric drill. I mean, it, it, it's relational, so it matters. But we also have to remember um, that the amount, the external track uh, tracking of something, how much time or volume doesn't always directly correlate to the internal interpretation of the strain. So we may think, oh, yeah, you got to do 100 mile weeks. Well, no, you don't have to do 100 mile weeks all year round. Do you have to do a long run all year round? Well, no, not necessarily. Like there's periods where like the milers I coach, like won't touch a long run for six months. Like Daniel Herrera didn't touch a long run for six months during his competitive phase because he has a long competitive phase. And Guess what, fans? Like the long run just wasn't important because it just it compromised recovery too much for the relative return on the stimulus. And then people will say, "Oh, well, the long run you got to do it because of capillary development and mitochondrial population development." You can get the same benefit from high intensity work. It's just a different gene signaling that happens, but you can still get mitochondrial um, improvement from high intensity work as long as it's the correct dosage and frequency. Exactly. And I think that's, <clears throat> that's something that, you know, we need to take into account. And I think it epitomizes the getting out of the, the this, like, categorization slash check the box type training. Because, mm-hmm. like, when you need to check the box, then you have to get your weekly long run in. You have to get your weekly interval session in or your week tempo run session and whatever it is but when you when you kind of change your frame uh mindset and instead see it as like what are we trying to develop or maintain like what is the purpose of this then you can understand periods where you don't do long runs for that long period you know um early on in my college career we used to we used to do long runs like the day after races and try and squeeze it in to get in there. But now like we don't because athletes would be too tired. Yeah. Then, then we'd lose another day of quality that we could get in our, and instead like now we don't. So if we right. race on you just Saturday, extended, yeah. yeah, you extended the recovery latency period. Yeah. You just made it longer. So if we like race on Saturday, we have Sunday either off or really easy. And then like by Monday or Tuesday, depending on how much we race, like we're ready to hit a very hard session. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think like when we squeeze stuff in too much, like it gets, it, it hurts. And, you know, the long run at first, you're like, oh, my endurance is going to go away. But like we differ from Lydiard in the sense that we're not doing five days of intervals and we might not have a long run, but we have like some easy runs in between our, our hard workouts, <laughs> which do turns out do a pretty dang good job of like maintaining decent aerobic strength. Right. Um, and if we throw in like a threshold or a tempo or a progression in there, like it maintains our high end aerobic and, you know, we do a long run the week that we don't have a race and all is good with the world and it didn't end. So, 
<laughs> yeah. And, you know, the pendulum, like Steve likes to point out, the pendulum of misinterpretation or absolutist interpretation swings, right? There's this pendulum that 100 mile weeks, Lydiard, all right, got it. And then it swung, you know, in the Sebco model of like, uh, where people just took from Sebco, just run fast and intervals and short, and that's all that matters. And then, you know, people are like, well, in the 90s, you know, we just, we tried that, it didn't work. No, we didn't really try it because if you understand what Sebco and kind of that group of middle distance runners are doing, I mean, in Harry Wilson's book, Running My Way, he has very explicitly um, documented uh, and um, training tables, but also uh, definition of um, of training runs. And they're, they're all steady state. Everything's steady state like based on the athlete's perception, right? So every non-interval workout, every day that's not an interval session, the athlete is running for a steady period of time, half hour to 50 minutes. Guess what, fans? That's tempo runs, right? <laughs> because, but people just heard just do this, the intervals and the sprints or whatever, and then they, you know, went super easy and they just threw the steady state part out the window because that's really tough to do, but it gets you really fit. And that, that's the thing here that we have to understand is like, we like to simplify things and we're all guilty of it. Like we're human beings. That's what we do. But like the Sebco example, the Harry Wilson example is perfect because like it, it, the nineties kind of sucked, not because of like Sebco's training or Harry Wilson or Peter Coe's book. It sucked because we took the wrong messages out of it. Yes. <laughs> It was the wrong inter. It was an incomplete interpretation. Yes, like, I think I've got running my way, and it's one of my favorite books by Wilson. Is it's a beautiful example of like how to put together this blend of training and create a a great miler because it has mm-hmm. it, it has everything you need. And if you get past the 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 some of the science and the junk in in Peter Coe's book, like you'll see the same thing of like blending everything together if you get past on linear the 100 mile weeks like you see the all-out sprints you see the hill plyometrics you see the interval mm-hmm. work in there if you if you look at Zatapak and you get past the like 40 by 400s and look at how fast he was doing them and the recovery and the volume of stuff you say oh <laughs> like this dude is is developing all these things you know, and like that is that is kind of what John and I are screaming at the mountains from <laughs> for her, especially, you know, on Twitter, but also on this podcast is that like it, we need to get away from this like extremist, like straw man arguments and like take the holistic view of the training for what it is and understand like, oh, they're all just solving the same problem. Like, they all need endurance, speed, like, high-intensity stuff, tempos, whatever you want to call it. Um, they're just solving it in slightly different ways, and maybe we can learn from that. And we did. Like, we learned from, you know, again, I'll go, Lydiard, I think, was a genius on this. Like, he learned from Zatapec and saw, like, oh, intervals all the all the time. Like, that's, you know, intervals are important, so I'm going to include them five days a week. But during the competition phase, but like, I think we can develop the endurance component in a better, more systematic way. And you got to remember with Zatapec, Zatapec would be like essentially 
you know, have three to six weeks to train. <laughs> so it made, he's like, Hey, we got the Olympics in six weeks. You better get training. Dude. He's like, Oh shit. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and it was very short sighted in terms of preparation horizons because athletics wasn't a profession to dominate his life and his landscape. So yeah. I mean, that's a quick way to get real sharp. I, I, I mean, it's no different than, than Roger Bannister and his advisor, Fran Stample. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. people point to, like, the interval training is like, no, duh, man. That was, like, genius. If you've got 30, 40 minutes to train on your lunch hour, what <laughs> yeah. are you going to do? I mean, right. like, that 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 is that is what that was the best bang for their buck to get out of the uh, out of the competition what they what they needed but like times are a little different and same with you know mm-hmm. I I remember Vern Gambetta loves talking about this with like Peter Snell and those Lydiard guys and and people would be like oh they didn't lift weights and stuff and and uh, uh, I remember Vern once saying like yeah but this was like the 1950s and 60s right like lifestyle was different like people were raised differently like peter snell you look at him he is a man he is an athlete like Mm -hmm. he is a like he had some like old farm boy strength on him Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know and it's like Vern would say like is is that the kid coming out to pe today i don't think so um, so it's like, it, it's taking into consideration some of these things that maybe are factors for why the good coaches and athletes of the time made the decisions that they did. But times are a little different. Athletes are a little different. The key isn't to copy it, but to think just like Lydiard or Zatapak or whoever, co, and look and analyze what decisions do you need to make to tackle the problems that we all face, which is balancing out all these different components of speed, endurance, et cetera, uh, to get to the performance that you need to. Yeah. And that's why, you know, education never ends and Steve and I are constantly, constantly trying to, you know, get better through reading, research, dialogue and everything like We've said many times we don't know it all, but we do stand on the shoulder of giants. And that's why it's critical when you you look at all these different coaches in these different eras and periods of technology advancement or lack thereof or whoever who are solving these problems they had about athlete readiness in whatever time horizons they had to do it and frequencies. The thing that sticks out with all everyone we, we frequently reference, like Sarity, Bowerman. Um, Lydiard, you know, Igloy, uh, I mean, you just go down the food chain, right? Co and on and on and on is the fact that there was everything always present during the, in the leading right up into the performance period. And everyone was very focused on performing at a certain point in time for a certain championship. There's a difference between trying to always be on and to be on when it counts. And the great ones, coaches and athletes alike, who enjoyed the, you know, the fruits of their labor were on, were focused on being on when it counted during that championship or high competitive period. And in that, you see a mixture of everything present. 
But the reason the mixture of everything is present is because they're maintaining all the qualities that they focused and developed throughout the training preparation periods they had, whether it was a whole year, half a year, six weeks, whatever. They already pre-exposed each athlete to those um, training qualities in a very dedicated focal point so that then it could be mixed and it could be varied because it was maintenance in that final phase. And I think that's sometimes we just want to look at to when did Jim Ryan run his world record? What was the workout he did the week before, <laughs> you know, or like, okay, what, what was the most sexy workout Alan Webb did before he ran his American records? Well, it's great to look at those, you know, and go and, you know, like get speed goggles and Google at them, but it's all relational. It's, there's a relationship about what came six weeks before, what came six months before, and even to a certain degree of some athletes now, what came six years before? Because it, it bleeds in and impacts what what they're able to do and why they're able to do the competitive expression they did with the training they had. And I think we forget that because we our brains are still reptilian, are still pretty basic, and we like simple, even though it's super complex. And it's like, you know, you hear people, oh, you're a complexifier. Well, if it's complex, it's complex. I'm sorry. You can't you can't simplify complex. But we also can't also depend on one-to-one or very quick snap judgment linear relationships. Um, you know, those cognitive bias we have because it doesn't tell the complete story. And then we develop a bias or belief that is just plain wrong. So I'm going to end with this, this note. As we harp on this, or we talk about these figures from the past a lot, and I'm going to implore our coaches <laughs> to like do the deep work and learn your history. Okay. I think it's a great... Shame, shame aside plug. Steve and I did this we a couple did. years ago. Um, the High Performance West Supreme Skull. Supreme Seminar or something yep. to that yep. effect, we called it. It broke us. It, well, it broke me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it, it broke us. our back. It, it was a labor of love. We still have it available. It is you know worth every penny. It's, I think, $299, but it's 50 hours. And Steve and I take, take everyone through Western training... Yes. You know, four mil distance and distance running from 1900s to today with a lot of what our own stuff was for athletes that we worked with who has success as well in there. And it's really clear, really specific, you know, and if you're, you find yourself in a space where you're like, well, I can't justify the thousand dollars to go to a conference or something. Everyone who's taken it has, you know, yes. has given us really positive feedback. And we basically have did the dairy work for you. And we're asking for like, the hundreds of dollars we spent on these books and like $500 books here and there, like the books are no longer in print, just <laughs> a nominal fee. It's a screaming bargain. It's totally worth it. I've revisited a couple of times, you know, or Steve's parts a couple of times goes, Oh, I, I forgot about that. Yeah, he's right. <laughs> it's true. And, and, and truthfully it, it broke me too, but it was like, <laughs> it, it was well worth it. Cause it, 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 you know, from a grand scheme of things it refreshed things. And I think one of the great disservices we do as a coaching education is put so much emphasis on physiology and yeah. almost zero emphasis on history because mm. 
if you if you go back and you look at your history of these coaches, and I'm talking, you know, John and I went back to like the original Lydiard books published in the sixties, not not mm-hmm. the updated ones, the the OG ones. Uh, with training schedules in those. But if you look at that stuff, you, you, you start to understand the patterns and start to understand this is what the problem Lydiard was trying to solve in the context he was in. And that, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying this to sound enlightened or anything like that, but that helps clear up so many of the clouds and arguments that we have. So this, this podcast started with talking about like an argument we had on this high on Twitter on this high volume or high speed or high intensity or whatever you have. But like, if you go back and you look at the history, you say, you know what? We're arguing over this thing, but no one, no one does either or they just solve these. They've, they've solved these problems in different ways, you know? Mm -hmm. And like the people that, that they hold up as paradigms of like their example, like we said, the Zatapex, the Coes, the Lydiards, um, the Harold Norpoths we talked about in our seminar, I believe. Um, they like their, their, their examples are straw man. They don't work. If you know the history, you're like, no, no, Lydiard solved for the speed problem. He did. He solved it really well. Mm-hmm. You know, Zatapex solved for the endurance. Igloy, like, Solve for both, you know, he's, he's solved for them. Like, Co did too. Like, they all figured out different ways. Like, Igloy might have done it all on the track because he was training athletes in Compton, LA. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and like, that's the route he took because there weren't anywhere else, there wasn't anywhere else to run. So he solved it that way. Um, <laughs> but, and, and that, you know, if you look at, the history, like, that's how a lot of these things, these guys solved it because of the constraints around them. I forget this, the American steeplechaser in the, in the, I think 1948, uh, uh, Olympics. Um, he's blanking on me. He was an FBI agent, but he solved the problem because he had to run, run to work. So like his workouts were very different than anybody else at the time because like, that was when he got in his his workouts, right? Buddy Edlin, the mm-hmm. the school teacher who set the marathon world record in the, in the sixties, I believe, similarly ran to and from teaching. So he solved his problems with Fred Welch as a as an advisor in a very different way than training was done at that time because the constraints, you know, gave it to him. So thinking mm-hmm. about that now is now a lot of times those constraints are lifted because we have full time students or athletes if you're working with pros. Um and we don't have that as much constraints, so we tend to like get bogged down in these arguments of either or. But the reality is we're all dealing with the nuance and if you understand your history and you go back, I promise you it will bring clarity to your coaching. 100 percent. it's it's harder work up front but it's easier work in the long run and again don't be lazy be you know be forward thinking be curious and be willing to invest in yourself up front because as long as we stay in the like copy and paste and steve and i were talking about this offline before we started it the the default impetus is to see what the most successful person today is doing, get insight into what their training 
paradigm or program or philosophy looks like and then just want to copy and paste it because that's good confidence right if it worked for you know this successful person it's going to work for me and a lot of people try to sell you that it's snake oil it's not true it's the principles that were applied that um worked and it's understanding the principles is tougher because you have to just see different examples and that's why i try to be you know steve and i try to be specific some at times with specific examples of how we're handling something or how we're dealing with it or how we're programming it because the more specificity you see and the more you can also look at the granular but also step back and be more panoramic and see the pattern then you can say, oh, everyone's very, is solving these things with a similar or maybe slightly divergent pattern, but this is how they're solving their competitive processes or competitive preparation processes that are necessary for their level of competition for their athlete. And that's the key. That's the key. Understand that. It's harder. It's not as firm up front, like I said. In the long run, though, it's what makes you better, guaranteed. 100%. So we'll leave that at that. Everything we talked about will be in the show notes in terms of links. So check that out. Thanks again for listening and welcome to 2020. Uh, hopefully a year of challenging, but, um, you know, hopeful. I think our hoping. fifth year of the pod, right? Something I mean, didn't like we that. start in 15? We're doing this five years. It, Let's it, go. It all blends together. <laughs> it all bleeds together like training. That's right. <laughs>